And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. The Mix 100 continues with number 28, Star Trek at 55, featuring interviews from those in the final frontier. Starting us off is Herbert Wright. He actually worked on Star Trek The Next Generation. I always call him the father of the Ferengi. And here he is on Gene Roddenberry. Gene will always catch you off guard. I mean, mm-hmm. Gene Gene was an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he could be extremely funny. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was really feeling his way through the next generation because he'd really not been given his opportunity. It seems ironic given, given his, his fame and, and, uh, you know, his talent, but he'd never been given the opportunity in the first series to really do what he wanted to do. Yeah. Classic series. I mean, he was on again, off again with, with the network and the studio. And then with the movies after the first one, and they kind of, it began its own steam engine. And while he got the, got the scripts, he, you know, really, it was really someone else getting to make the movies. So Next Generation was really the first opportunity for him to really put out there what he really felt that Star Trek should be all about. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Patrick Stewart talks about Star Trek's lasting appeal. I am astonished at the extent to which Star Trek, not just Next Generation, but the, the Next Generation of a particular way, has threaded itself into popular culture in in North America. And the significance that it seems to have for so many people, it, it doesn't diminish that I have been encountering this feeling which is deeper than affection, that, that is, is stirring in some way. I know, I mean, Brian Singer has it, John Logan has it. You talk to them, and, and there is a there is a, a manner and an attitude when they talk about this series, which goes beyond just something that uh, that you know they've they've been amused and entertained by. And I I used to think I could explain it. I, I had theories about it. I, I don't care to try to analyze it. It's simply become now for me, at my age and the stage of my career, deeply gratifying to find myself a part of it, something that I never anticipated or looked for. And indeed, if it were all to end tomorrow, God forbid, um, you know, this is uh, something that I would, were I in a state to feel good about anything, I would feel good about it. Here's one of the doctors on Star Trek, John Billingsley, on his doctor, Flux. You know, that was one thing when I read the when I read the script. I thought, "What? What's the doctor having these reservations for? For God's sake, <laughs> come on! <laughs> I got three wives. The fourth wife isn't going to kill me." That's right. So that'd be interesting too. I don't think we've ever had a a shipboard marriage on a Star Trek uh, show, actually, except for Tom and Balan on the last show. So well, what I'd really love to do is sort of along the line of of Mud's women is is have my wives visit and and perhaps they could all be played by my own wife, Bonnie Friederici. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, she'd be, she'd play herself at three. Maybe all the women on my planet actually just look like Bonnie. <laughs> we could clean up at the conventions. She could come as the entire species. One of the most interesting characters that kind of spanned a few generations was John Delancey as Q. 
as time has gone on, it's a character that has become so disproportionately popular to the amount of times that I've done it that that there's a lot of um, thought and consideration put into each episode just because of that. And so this time, you know, we went in yet another direction, and, and my job and the writer's job is to try to create new facets to this, to this, actually this diamond that was created ten years ago by Gene Roddenberry. When you do ten, you've got lots still to go. You know, I mean, I dare say some people. I don't know, in in shows. You know, over the years, they get you know fifty, sixty, hundred shots, and they only come up with <laughs> four or five facets to begin with. You know, and leave it at that. I mean, I try to look for for little areas that haven't been explored, and so do the writers. So we're always trying to go. So it gets more and more multi-dimensional. Perhaps one of the unsung heroes of Star Trek was former Pocketbooks editor John Ordover, who developed, along with a great stable of writers, some great Star Trek novels. Basically, I just wanted to do something that only the books could do and that would challenge myself and the authors. Um, this was the, basically the first idea I came up with. I sat down to think of what would be really fun to do, and one thing that would be really fun would be to tie all the series together. And with Voyager in the Delta Quadrant, you start thinking about space and time stretching things, and Invasion grew out of that. I came up with the basic notion, and I called Diane Carey and uh, asked her to flesh it out, and she wrote seed outlines for the other three authors, and they then wrote their own outlines based on that and it's turned into one of the most extraordinary Star Trek productions of any kind. Star Trek has had its ups and downs in its cinematic life. I once spoke to Alan Dean Foster about his writing the Star Trek logbooks and his treatment for Star Trek the motion picture. You also did uh, novelizations for the uh, Star Trek animated series if I recall and uh, I have probably credit you as one of the people that when there wasn't anything new on Star Trek because of these novelizations, this is all we had to read or to see. So it was very important in sort of keeping the uh, the faith on that. And then you actually wrote the um, the treatment for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, how, how did that come about? And I also did seven Star Trek scripts for Talking Records. Oh, that's a company know. called Power Records that issued two Star Trek records. Uh, and there were three or four stories on each one of them. Original scripts with sound effects and, and real Star Trek. But no names were given. They didn't credit names for many years. I think I had one of those. And, yeah. and I, I'm very proud of those little scripts. They were written a long time ago, but they're Star Trek scripts. They may be only 15 minutes long apiece, but they are Star Trek nonetheless. The novelizations of the animated series came about because Ballantine Books bought the rights to do book versions of them. I had already done a couple of novels for them, a terrible film called Luana and a much better film called Dark Star. Mm -hmm. And the assignment was given to me. And the treatment for the Star Trek movie came about because Gene Roddenberry had seen the Star Trek logs. Oh, there you go. Interestingly enough, and liked them and was familiar, you know, figured that I knew the Star Trek universe and could work in it. And I was brought in along with a lot of other writers to submit ideas for a proposed revival of the TV series. And instead they decided to do a movie and my story was picked and that's how that came about. After, as many people have probably already read in numerous histories of Star Trek, 
project after the project became a big budget film I having no pull whatsoever in Hollywood became an instant non-person and it was a very unhappy experience for me but the first five minutes of the movie is all mine and after that they changed everything around and I was not asked to contribute so I can take neither credit nor uh, nor damnation for whatever follows after the first five minutes to uh, your credit what you told me earlier was uh, that you'd just been given a, essentially a one-page or a two-page outline uh, for a story idea and essentially the rest is all Alan Dean Foster do you think we would ever see uh, a version of that anywhere in print someday my treatment was titled in thy image and I would have no objection to having somebody reprint it. I mean, at this point, it wouldn't be for any sort of, of obscure literary value. It would be a, practically a historical document. But that would be something that would have to be discussed with the powers that be at, uh, at Paramount. Of course, there were many things different at the time. Leonard Nimoy had not signed on for the film, so there was a half-human, half-Vulcan character, more or less, to take his place, much younger named Zahn. Um, and uh, there were a number of other things that had to be different that were changed radically for many reasons. But if somebody wanted to see it reprinted in a Star Trek fanzine or, or a book or something like that, I certainly have no objections to it. It's an old piece of work, but uh, it might be, I'm, I would probably be a lot of fun for people to see, but that's entirely up to Paramount. One of the things the next generation did very well was develop the Klingons. And here's Michael Dorn. One of the things that I that I actually did when um, when I got the job was that I, I vowed to to change the perception of Klingons, uh, and uh, although we didn't have major discussions about it, Gene Gene allowed me to create uh, the Worf character any way I wanted to, and so what I did was I took um, uh, we had to do a different voice number one because the voice was too human-like, you know, originally, although deepest. And so I just took it and made it um, English, you know, made him a really eloquent, you know, instead of saying, uh, we can't, you know, I say we cannot, you know, and, and make it very stilted and very, uh, very eloquent. So, um, and also the same with the fighting sequences. You know, originally it was like uh, screaming and yelling and, and hitting with two hands, and you know, just really kind of wild stuff. And I and I went to one of the special effects supervisors on our show, who was a martial arts expert, and I said, "Look, you know, I want to change this all around. Let's do something that is that is violent, but uh, almost like martial arts like." You know, so every move is 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 choreographed, and it is it is every if you make a move, you're getting prepared for the next move, and so it looks real, um, um, you know, like like a dance, you know, except they can rip your throat out, you know, or something. And so that's that's that was my whole point is to is to um, change the Klingons so they weren't just you know these wild guys and. I made him a little different. I also know that uh, Discovery is going to be doing that as well. Uh, with that cast system should be interesting. Here's some interesting interviews where Star Trek actors are really talking about something when you get to know a little bit more of who they were as people. First, we start off with Leonard Nimoy. As at one time, he founded a theater company and was actively involved in theater early in his career and even during Star Trek. I was, uh, I was teaching acting classes in a studio uh, uh, on, um, I think it was on El Centro, right in the middle of Hollywood, just off of, off of Melrose, near Melrose and Vine Street. Some of the students were interested in starting an acting company, a, a theater company. And one day they came to me and they said, we think we have found uh, a building that might be right for us. Would you come and take a look at it with us? 
it was only about two blocks away, so we walked over to this building uh, on, I think it was at the corner of Waring and Vine Street. It looked like it could work, and I laid out the design for the, the way the uh, the way the seating on the stage should be laid out in the building, and we began working on creating a theater. Oh, that's and, wonderful. And um, we went into rehearsal for a very long period on a on. I was looking for a play for them that I would direct. I was looking for a play that would that would put to work as many of their actors as possible, so we could have a lot of roles for a lot of people. There was a play by Tennessee Williams that we chose called the Camino Real. Very large canvas play. A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of scenes. Uh, and I was intrigued with it and I thought it might be fun to do. We did the casting and um, went in a very difficult period because we were rehearsing in a theater that was being built. Yeah. So physically it was very difficult. And after a long period of building problems. We're getting building permits and electrical permits and plumbing permits and one thing and another and working on, on um, minimal dollars and rehearsing at the same time. <laughs> it, got to be, it got to be very complicated. At least while I was around, and this was uh, after months of work on this project, we never did get the play open, but we had, we had put a bunch of actors through their paces pretty good. <laughs> so, And eventually they got the theater open and, and they've managed to 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 remain a company all this time, and I give them a lot of credit for it. Yeah, that's great, and and so many people, not only yourself and and Robert, but uh, Richard Chamberlain and Vic Morrow have all literally flexed their acting muscles there. And, yes, exactly. Yeah, and and the stage is so important. I I firmly believe that for actors. Yeah, I think um, if I remember, Vic Morrow directed a wonderful production of La Ronde. Oh, nice for them. It was a beautiful production. Yeah. And so you got asked to come back, and uh, what's it going to feel like for you to be back there and to see well, it's it? It's great. I'm I'm really impressed with with what they've been doing. They they are very focused on on uh, on working on new and and very uh, relevant material having to do with uh, ethnic issues, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a, that's a, a real good niche and an important niche that they have chosen for themselves. To uh, to deal with issues that that are, are so relevant to so many people who are, to at least to, uh, as far as I can see, underrepresented in the theater. Yeah. So they're they're uh, they're airing some ideas and and exploring some ideas that I think are very important. More of the Mix One Hundred on Sci Fi Talk. So stay tuned. Now James Doohan actually served during World War Two and was actually in Normandy during the invasion. And he talks about those World War II experiences. Very excited, excited about uh, my war experience. That I had experiences that I don't think anybody else could ever possibly have. It's like uh, my experience with B seventeens. Mm-hmm. Did you read the? Yeah, I did read that part about B seventeen. I tell you, you know, you get into a tiger moth and you climb to ten thousand feet, which takes an hour and a half. You know, tiger moth. You know, there's no power there. And uh, you break through a cloud, and there's 36 B-17s coming right at you 180 degrees that way. And, man, I tell you, it's only seconds. But pretty soon I'm laughing and smiling. I'm looking up at uh, belly gunners and down at top gunners and and all the side gunners that they have and everything else. And I feel, oh, wow, hey, I got through, you know, all in about four or five seconds. And they're probably saying to me, look at that bloody limey. And there's how you know how how could he be so stupid as to do this? 
I had 20 hours of flying at the time. No experience at all, and then I hit the prop wash. That's right, you're talking about the prop wash. I lost about three or four thousand feet. And my, I had asked my instructor, you know, what do I, what should I do on the way home? He says, why don't you climb up to 10,000 feet and then do aerobatics? And everything else, you know, all the way, fly to Cambridge. And I thought I was over Cambridge, or pretty close anyway. There I did it. And on the, on the way home after that uh, prop wash thing, was that, that's uh, 36 times 4 engines up there in that area spouting out wind. You know, which is not too good for a little tiger moth. So anyway, when I got down to about 5,000 feet, I said to myself, what the hell with the aerobatics? I'm going home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that would have qualified as the aerobatics anyway. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, don't worry. (laughs) I'm telling you. But, of course, the tiger moth was was built to uh, recover itself. But I must say that I succeeded in recovering it just by giving hard opposite rudder most of the things. But the flying was, oh, God, I did things flying that uh, no sane person would probably ever think of doing. I mean, I can remember after a victory in Europe, I had to go into Germany a lot, mostly to deliver mail. Or sometimes a, a full medical colonel, I would fly to Detmold, and that poor man had no idea what was going on. He says, do you know where you're going? I knew the, I knew the trip and the tour and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he said to me, I mean, he was nervous as hell. You know, probably had never been on a small plane in his life anyway. But he was nervous. And uh, a full colonel, you know, red... Uh, stripes on his epaulets and uh, we were going into that mold and and I said uh, yes sir I said well I tell you what uh, I said uh, here why don't you look at the map you know I said I got to fly the airplane we were only at about 500 feet anyway he says oh he says I, I, I can't read anything he said well, what's that town over there little town you know nothing 16 buildings or something like that you know and I said oh that's uh, Ogan Smoggin I made up a name <laughs> you know and he says oh well he looks for Ogan Smoggin on the, on the map and everything else and then I said well I tell you what sir I said you know I, I don't want to worry you anymore I said because but very soon we're going to be coming to the Autobahn I said, and uh, and as a matter of fact, while I was talking to him about it, I said, there it is right there, and it runs that way, and Detmold is up there. We'll just follow the Autobahn up to Detmold, and it'll be no problem at all. Oh, he just went. He just sighed and said, oh, God. He had no idea where he was and didn't trust me one little bit. Those last two samples and the entire interviews are available on my feed are special to me because we lost both of those actors. Brent Spiner played a very interesting character in Lieutenant Commander Data. And as with Star Trek, there's makeup involved. It, it stayed exactly the same, I, but uh, the only difference 
the worst part of the makeup has always been the contact lenses, always. The makeup adds to that difficulty because it gets in my eyes and smears over the lenses, and by the middle of the day, I can't see anything anymore. And the lenses are prescription lenses, but they're not my prescription, so it makes things very difficult. In this film, I had a particularly difficult time with the lenses. I don't know why. I, I'm one of these people who I'm lucky in that at my advanced age, I can still read without glasses. I do need them for distance, but I don't to read. I was finding myself in the morning really having a hard time reading and I, and I knew it wasn't it was only in the morning by the end of the day I could read fine and so I went through to an ophthalmologist he said what's happened on and it happened on this film was that my corneas which are you're supposed to be smooth were wavy and so I said to him well would you be willing to testify to that in court and no I'm kidding I didn't really <laughs> but uh, he uh, he said it will take about a year for them to smooth out again, and they will repair themselves. But but that's the hardest part is the contacts. Star Trek had a couple of shapeshifters, but easily my favorite is Rene Aubergenois, who was Odo. It's like playing any other character, except that at a certain point you melt and you become jello and you run all over the place and then you become something else. And when, it, when I become something else, it's obviously not really me. It's done with like special effects. And uh, so that like one, one show I had to turn into a rat. And so I, I didn't have to come into work the day the rat worked. And, uh, but when I came in the next day, everybody said, oh, you were great yesterday. You did really well. But actually, all they were doing were filming the rat running around. So um, it's really not that different from playing any any character. You just, uh, he's uh, he becomes very uh, real to me. And so I don't even think about it. I do a different voice for Odo, but I don't do that voice. Like right now, I'm not talking in that voice. I don't know if, you know, you know Odo, Odo has a sort of a gruff voice like that. But I, I find it difficult to do his voice when I'm not in my makeup. I think Ethan Phillips really made Neelix his own in Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, the, the only thing we really have in common, Neelix and I, is our, actually our left elbow and part of my lower colon. Other than that, we uh, are totally different. I, um, no, everything, everything you see is put in digitally by the uh, computer people. I do nothing. Um, I, uh, no, I, no, I, I, the writers, the writers write, and then I, as an actor, try to, um, make it, uh, um, uh, you know, alive, um, and, uh, so all the, uh, the stuff you see is, 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 besides the words, is me, I hope, you know, and, uh, if I go off the track, the director, um, steers me back on, you know, sometimes I, I tend to be, uh, you know, my background's in farce, and Moliere, and Fado, and I, I tend to be way big, so they're always bringing me back, but I always say it's easier to bring you back than ask you to do more, so... It's a, it's a wonderful uh, thing that you're doing for people who don't look as godlike as many of the TV characters. Although out of makeup, you're devastatingly handsome. As Neelix, you're you so slightly much. challenged, but still, you've got the best-looking babe on the show. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm very lucky uh, to finally, in, after 25 years of acting, to, to get the babe. Unfortunately, I'm wearing four pounds of rubber, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I do have the babe. Which, uh, but I think you know, very few people know that Neelix was a swimsuit model on his planet, and uh, that's the uncommon knowledge. Marina Sirtis reminds us how hard it was for Next Generation at the very beginning. Because of the way DS9 and Voyager were, were greeted by the press and the media and, and the fans, they seem to think that's what happened when we started. And they have forgotten that when we started, people were actually saying, how dare you? 
What do you, how dare you even think of putting another Star Trek on? We love what we have. We don't want anything new. And who is this British bald guy wanting to be a captain? You know. Um, fortunately, my character didn't have an equivalent in the first show, so I, I was let off pretty easily. Apart from, uh, I think it was uh, Rolling Stone who said I came from Long Island, <laughs> which actually I was actually quite pleased about because I didn't think I could do an American accent at the time. Um, but uh, we really had to win the audience and uh, that basically I think ha happened in around about the third season when the show really took off but no we had to really scramble and we weren't accepted with open arms like the, like the two new shows kind of were. I remember speaking to Linda Park just before the premiere of Enterprise which eventually became Star Trek Enterprise. That's really cool it's very it's very um you know techno actiony kind of edgy, an edgier quality than mm -hmm. Star Trek has had before. Yeah. That's, yeah, those are, those are fun to see, to kind of, because uh, we're so inside our work. Sure. To kind of be able to step back and see what, you know, the excitement that an audience may feel, because we've been in it for, for a while now and so consumed by it. Um, oh, yeah. And the technicalities. But seeing the trailers uh, just goes, it goes back to the initial, um, excitement and joy of the show of of this new of this new prospect we're all going into yeah, prequel yeah. to the Star Trek legacy it really it really is overwhelming especially when we watch the trailers just to see to see ourselves really as the characters you know, yeah yeah in, in that in that kind of format and and see what um what the audience is probably the case of what the audience. Sure, what the audience is going to see. You know, Jonathan Frakes made a you know point years ago talking about the audition process for Next Generation, uh, mm -hmm. saying it was like seven auditions. Uh, <laughs> right, right. How was it for you for Enterprise? It was a pretty long process. Mm -hmm. I didn't. It was a long process in which I didn't go in, um, you know, repeatedly for a lot of times, but mm -hmm. they spent a lot of time looking for girls. And the first time they had seen me, the first uh, group, I was, from what I had heard from my agent, is uh, I was the, you know, one of the few that they liked. And so they wanted to get more perspective. So that's why it took longer, because they kept wanting to audition more to see if they could get more possibilities for the for the character but then it turned out by the end of the process that even in the end I was the only one that ended up testing for the part. Oh great. Yes. It's good in one sense that that they didn't you know there wasn't anybody else they liked for the part besides me but mm -hmm. the negative side of that is if I didn't get the part then it wouldn't be oh so and so was 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 just more right for it. Yeah. If there was no other girl, it would have just been, oh, well, I guess they didn't like me, you know? <laughs> um, it was a long, it was a long process, but knowing that they did, that the producers did like me that much gave me a lot more confidence in the room, you know, when I would go back to know that they were on my side, that they weren't out to, you know, find my flaws or see me do badly. They wanted to see me do well. I got a chance a few years ago to speak to Doug Jones, who was playing an android in Space Command, and he talks about some of his robotic parts and also his career. Well, first of all, I got to play an android. I'd never played an android character before. Yeah. Been lots of other worldly creatures before, but never, never a mechanical <laughs> one of this nature. Now, I did do a couple of funny robots. Uh, I was the robot, my name is number seven, in The Benchwarmers. Hmm. 
and I was also I was on wheels and kind of like completely a, you know in a hard shell operating a you know a robot and using my voice and also with uh, I played a character named called Gay Robot in Nick Swardson's Pretend Time. That's a very <laughs> funny comedian. He developed that character on his in his stand-up act, and then took it to television on Comedy Central. Bless his heart. It was just the most filthy thing I've ever played. But <laughs> but, uh, but this being an android who you know it looks more humanish and uh, uses my actual face was kind yeah. of like, oh, let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the people you get to work with is an actor who I love, Robert Picardo. And, uh, oh, he is so good. Have you guys yeah. ever met? You must have met in your circles. or, or We or have. No? Oh, okay. We have before. We, um, we've actually been credited alongside each other in other films before. Uh, once, uh, the working title was End of the Road, and I think it might be called One, Two, Three, Scream now. Okay. Which is an unfortunate title. I kind of like <laughs> End of the Road better. Yeah. And we also were in, we met many years ago on an episode of The Outer Limits. Oh, right, right. In the late 90s, uh, filming up in Vancouver, I played an alien from outer space, and he was uh, uh, on another planet, and he was on an excavation team that that found me in sort of a sarcophagus underground. Oh, cool. And I I slowly came to life while sucking the life out of one of his team members. (laughs) As you do, you know. That that happens sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Right, right, right. So um, that's when we first met was back then. In the late '90s, and then um, in the other movie along the way, and then oh, I'm trying to oh oh well, we did another one, another a silly sci-fi movie called Rock Jocks with Felicia Day. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, more recently, yeah yeah that's right that's right. I love Felicia. She's a doll. Oh, isn't Felicia just delightful? Yeah, she's, she is. She really is. Right. Just turn on your webcam and talk to us. We're all happy. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> right? right. That would that would that would make my day. I'll tell you. Yeah. This way you kind of get to know a little bit of who Doug Jones was and what he's done, in case you don't know. And shame on you if you don't. Here is Jonathan Frakes, first officer in Next Gen, on the show's fans. I'm in downtown Omaha at the Holiday Inn, getting in a cab to go to the convention center to do my little spiel at the convention. I pull up to a stoplight, and up next to me pulls a Ford Taurus with a Klingon driving and a, a Borg in the next seat. And you think, did these guys just, you know, go into their bathrooms and glue that rubber turtle on their head, and now they're driving to the convention, and they're going to see me? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and lastly, Patrick Stewart's going to take us home. There are times when you're shooting a drama series, you do wonder, is anybody paying attention to this? You think, you know, two o'clock on a Saturday morning at the end of a long week, you wonder, who does this all amount to anything at all? It has been uh, especially delightful, particularly within our own profession, when you find, I, I don't know if you're aware, but Tom Hanks is a big Next Generation fan. I mean, Tom knows the names of the episodes. I mean, it's that uh, significant to him. Uh, to find that the Secretary Albright is a big fan of Next Generation. And that seems very appropriate, too, when you consider that woman and what she has done and what her, uh, what her beliefs are. Vice chancellors of universities, uh, uh, an ex uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, people in all walks of life have, they feel something about it that I can no longer properly analyze. I can just see it in their faces and in their, and in their manner. And it's, um, it's very, very gratifying. Sonequa Martin Green had an interesting relationship in season two of Star Trek Discovery with Ash Tyler. That was a, a unique experience for Burnham. Um, I I had never been in love before uh, as Michael Burnham. That was the very that was a first love situation. Very 
very new thing, you know, to, to go to a loving relationship from, you know, from, from the, you know, sort of um, upbringing that I had. Um, and yes, this concept of love, I'm still learning about and still understanding, um, especially because um, the self-love is something I'm still trying to, 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 to learn. And, and Burnham actually um, may not even be completely conscious, may not even be completely aware of that self-love and, and what's um, and, and, and how hard it really is to do it and, and, that, and that that is the key. I'm just saying, I just know it's Sadiqwa, but that's what needs to happen. <laughs> Star Trek Discovery's new aliens are the Kelpians. As I examine Saru, who has unique movements and gestures that certainly make him more alien, Doug Jones told me about creating that part of Saru. Yeah, the challenge for me after 32 years of playing aliens and monsters and fantasy creatures is how do you make this one different than the others? Um, uh, so, ma- so many things inform that. Uh, uh, he's he's among the smartest characters I've ever played. Uh, he so he also is was a prey species on his home planet. I, th- I feel like he needs to. He's kind of like posturing himself to fit in and to be the very very best. He wants to represent his his, his people well. So he, he has the behavior of a, of, a, of a very refined butler. Like you know what I mean. So uh, uh, so with that came a posture and, and a gesturing that, that that was very prim and proper, I believe. And but the the shoes, those boots, those hideous boots that are the most painful but gorgeous to look at, that create my hoof feet. Uh, that informed my posture even more so with where, where my hips are placed, how my arms flow when I walk, and, and how I stand when I'm standing still. Uh, thank heaven for Gersha Phillips and designing those boots because it's like that, that was like that's something I've not done before. That started you know, from the ground up. The Mix 100 is one of the many special programs available where you, the listener, can determine the list by your downloads. It's on Sci Fi Talk Plus. And it's a great gift not only for you, but also for your friends and family. 900 episodes, commercial-free, uncut, and special programs like The Mix 100 and Rewind. The best part? Right now, it's free. Click on the link in the show notes for free lifetime access. This is Tony Tolado.